Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Today I'm talking with Jason Stanhope, executive chef of Fig in Charleston, South Carolina. Jason, great to talk to you, man. Oh, man, I'm so excited to talk to you. It's, it's been too long. Way too long. So Fig, I did not know this, stands for Food is Good. Makes sense now that it's all capital letters. Uh, I thought it was just, you know, like an iconic fruit, but, uh, but no, it's, got it's, some, it's got some why behind it. There's, there's, there's so many figs that grow in the South. We have amazing fig tree uh, culture down here and people, you know, love their fig trees and they, and they're very high yielding and people will bring them to us all the time during the season. And I, and I like, I generally don't tell people, but I'm like, man, we're really not named after the fruit. It's just, we just want to make good food. You know, food is good. So that's so good. And so you can't have a menu item that doesn't have fig on it right like like otherwise people are like wait a minute i came to fig it's almost like you're a blessing and a curse to be able to have a, such an iconic thing grown down there and it happens to be your name which it kind of is but kind of isn't so i like well, that I know. well fig season is short and like you know good figs are amazing and after that everything drops off so you know we don't push the fig season you know outside of its boundaries but you know, when they're right, it feels pretty meta to be eating figs and fig, whether it's meant perfect. to be or not. So, uh, I like I like the duality of it. So, uh, we were talking just before we started recording. You and I worked together at Forty Sardines fourteen years ago. We're getting fucking old, man. I know it's it's harsh. Yeah, I, it, like when I realized when I started, you know, when I was thinking about you and, and when we uh, worked together last, I was like, man, we were just puppies back then <laughs> like, total kids unbelievable experience kansas city for those that don't know 40 sardines no longer there uh debbie gold amazing chef there in kansas city uh somehow put up with us punk kids and uh wow that that was an, a formative time in our careers for sure i know but man we did we worked so hard and we cared so much and i'm sure it wasn't as like romantic as I you know as I remember like it's like going back to that restaurant you thought was amazing 10 years ago and then you get there and you're like whoa <laughs> right it's kind of like sometimes you don't want to meet your heroes because you're always like let down that kind of thing it's like it's exactly, so romantic yeah. in our minds and then you go back it's like god how did we survive all that it's uh, I would yeah I would just prefer cool. not to meet like any character from a book because I've already formed my opinion about them and I don't want them to change that for the worse a hundred percent hey we have those memories at least we both think of it fondly so that's really great now we were in kansas city the missouri side of kansas city you were born in kansas topeka kansas and reading a little bit of your origin story is always interesting to me i think a lot of the way we are let's say as chefs uh, is informed in our youth and it's interesting so topeka kansas and you were a welder from 14 to 20 so talk to me about topeka kansas and being a welder and then you go, hey, I'm going to go to culinary school in San Francisco. So that's a lot to unpack. But let's get into that because I'm very interested in how we get into the industry. I think it's fascinating 
and speaks a lot to like why we do what we do. Um, well, yeah, I mean, so the welding thing was my dad, I wanted to work for my dad and, and, um, and, and my dad didn't want me to be like the boss's kid, you know? So like when we played sports, my dad would coach other teams. He wouldn't coach us. And when it came to work, he wanted us to learn from other people. So, uh, you know, he said that I had to work for somebody else for five years before I could work for him. And, um, my wrestling coach at the time, Rito signs had this welding shop and, um, and so I, I decided I was going to learn a trade. And in the summers, you know, I mean, I was like 14. So like early on, I just swept. And then like I got, I learned one thing and I learned another thing. And then next thing you know, I was like a functioning part of this, like, you know, also kind of like a subculture, which is, is funny. I've never really made that, that correlation to the restaurant industry. But, um, you know, it was just like, we were kind of felt like a band of misfits that um, worked really hard during the day. And you know, we ate lunch together and drank beers together. I mean, I was like 14 years old. They were like chucking beers at me before my driver's ed class. You know, they're like, if you do a man's job, you get to drink a man's drink. And I'm like, oh my God, where am I at? That's uh, so perfect. I, I talk about the Island of Misfit Toys, Band of Misfits, or your tribe. So very clearly that like rebel mentality, that, that gang of that Band of Misfits, as you put it, was something that was so important to you very young you were like influenced by that and so you went to culinary school you found a different kind of tribe how did culinary school even pop into the the potential realm of possibilities for you well you know i mean not to take it too dark of a place but i had i lost my father um i think 17 years ago um and when he passed away you know it's pretty easy to find trouble in Topeka, Kansas. And if, and if, even if you aren't looking for it, sometimes it'll find you depending on where you're, you know, um, hanging out. And I felt like I was going to get in trouble and I just felt so disappointed in myself that I was going to like possibly use this life changing experience as a, um, as a social crutch. And I don't know why or how or when or what kind of, you know, divine intervention happened, but I was like, I'm going to culinary school. And I had the support of my mom and my younger brother and every my family to, you know, to move away. And so um, I wanted to go to the best school. I want to be in the best city. And, and um, I don't know, San Francisco popped up and, um, and I chased that dream. I mean, you know, looking back, I, like when people are like, hey, should I go to culinary school? I'm like, hell no. Like, go work somewhere. Go find somebody. Like, work your ass off. So Jason, I got to say, like, thank you for sharing uh, about such a difficult situation. And I got to tell you, like, love hearing that you took such a difficult thing at such a young age and spun it into a complete positive that changed your trajectory forever. Like, what, what was that moment like for you to be able to say, I'm going to, I'm going to go do it. You said you had the support of your family and all that. And you, you're going to San Francisco, which it's like going to the moon from Topeka, Kansas is my guess. Talk to us a little bit more about that. Dig into that. I, I love that you turned well, that into such a positive. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I realized that it was going to take some work. It wasn't like, you know, there's no like uh, Holy grail. I wasn't like if moving to San Fran. I knew that moving to San Francisco wasn't going to be like the answer, but I knew that it was a place where I could um, possibly, you know, figure out that answer um, or just be but more better equipped to, to figure out what that answer was, you know, inside me. And, um, and the culinary 
thing, like I said, it was a total crapshoot, and I don't know why I did it, but I, I can tell you I, like, really got attracted to the team environment because, you know, sports were always a big part of my life, and um, and I just, you know, at a certain point, you realize that you're not going to be playing sports for very much longer. It's a pretty short-lived hobby if you, like, look at the grand scheme of things. Um, and then when I finally found this this kitchen environment where it was, like, you know, it's this meritocracy. It didn't, didn't matter who you are, who you are, or what you look like, or what you were into, or, or, or whatever. If you could do the, the job better than somebody else, then, um, then it was yours. And, and then there was also just this sacrifice for like a common vision that I'm like, you know, I find myself attracted to, um, in so many different, you know, facets of life. I, I have friends that are, Marines or, or whatever and, and we talk about you know the same thing um, but it was that like that team environment that that really like made the culinary world exciting to me and helped me you know overcome this you know this tragedy that you know looking back maybe was one of the better things that could have happened to me um, even though you know it sounds crazy but um, if it didn't happen I wouldn't you know I wouldn't be talking about it right now so yeah ad- adversity like reveals character i think that's profound and, and super interesting now you did r- raz culinary school a little bit however you found yourself at culinary school so talk to me about that do you think that you would have found your path in that way of finding your tribe if you had gone directly to a restaurant do you think that culinary school created a safe space or do you just think they're taking your money um you know i think that they that culinary schools are probably they probably changed a lot um and i don't know you know for the better or for worse but i do know that they made you culinary school was it it was a lot of people it seemed like a money machine um they didn't make it easy to succeed or at least to leverage that into a career that you were proud of you know um and there i think there are like false hopes wrapped up in what your your career or your your life is going to look like um directly after culinary school um and maybe they aren't realistic enough about the financials of being a cook or you know the the hardship on your body or relationships or things like that and um you know maybe in the same direction that 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 you speak of so often it's like there's so many other things to talk about and there's so many other variables to talk about in this industry um mental health just physical health um you know as opposed to like we all know how to make a great sauce or or we all know what that looks like you know the language of food is actually pretty similar no matter where you go but um but the people that 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 create that food and and their intricate um, systems of, you know, emotions and, and thoughts and desires are, are maybe, um, the part of culinary school that I think is left out. Um, you know, they, they focus so much on knife work, but they don't talk about how you should, you know, take care of your body so you can cook for a long time. It just, it seems a little weird to me. Um, and like I said, I don't recommend it first for all people, um, because I don't think it's a sure thing. Um, and I think there's cheaper, ways to to achieve those goals but looking back i also wouldn't change it you know personally i would do it again so it's kind of a weird place to be so what a what a great question i'm just gonna pat myself on the back for asking you such a great follow-up question 
your reflection on culinary school like the best ever so nuanced i think is the key and setting realistic expectations and having reality of what it is that you're getting yourself into it's i mean it's impossible unless you like live it unless the first time you get your your head kicked in from a service or whatever that might be so i think that's that's super interesting also like you said i mean it is it's great to make a great sauce but everybody can make a great sauce you know and it's the why and the who again is like so so important so i think that's fundamental now i didn't know how i was going to segue into this next piece because i knew we were going to get deep at the beginning and we always get a little playful but you're talking about reality goes right into one of the fun facts about you and you let us in on you're you're getting very revealing to us you said one of your guilty pleasures is binge watching the kardashians which i don't know if you can call that reality but it is reality tv Uh, i mean thank you for that nugget tell us a little bit about why that is such a release valve for you coming out of a crazy kitchen oh man you know i used to have more vices um when i was you know when we were cooking together for you know days and days on end and i had these things to i would i had things that i would you know smoke or drink or whatever that would uh that would you know kind of numb my senses a little bit and and i'm like my brain's always working and i have to figure out how to turn that off you know i always have to figure out how to unchef my life so I, I don't go home and treat my family like you know like a kitchen um and sometimes uh, a little like terrible television is like that thing that um that i can do that i don't really wake up with a hangover after i'm done <laughs> and everybody that knows me um well knows that i have this like it's not even a secret anymore um but I have this like weird infatuation with like the whole like Kardashian Jenner clan. And it's just like that, you know, it's, it's, it's like this train wreck that you just can't take your eyes off of. And, um, and so like here at work, we laugh cause we all follow like every one of them on Instagram and we send each other all these pictures, uh, like on direct message or, or whatever. And, um, but yeah, I, 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 it's, it is a funny, um, it's a funny guilty pleasure, uh, but you know, I don't know something, something charming about it. Something charming. Jason, for just for everyone listening, just to give them a peek behind the veil, we're doing these calls and these interviews. Every time my guest is speaking, I mute the microphone. So I'm not breathing heavily and awkwardly in the recording, right? But behind the scenes. Now, I wish I had turned it off because I was literally fucking laughing the entire time you're we talking about this because it's so good. Like you just need a way to turn your brain off. I'm so with you. I watch the dumbest sci-fi movies or TV shows all the time. Betsy's like, this is so stupid. I was like, I know it is so awful. I'm getting well, no just, value out of this, but I am. You also, we also, I think as cooks and as people that, that, that work very hard, we're always looking for, like a little treat at the end of the day, you know, or, or whenever, you know, and, um, but our time becomes so valuable just because we don't have a lot of it. And I, and I know that happens like to everyone as we get older, but at a certain point in time, I think we're looking for that sure thing. And like, we don't want to risk it on, we don't want to risk, you know, devoting time that is seemingly wasted on something that that's not going to deliver, you know? So we that's, I think that's why we're creatures of habit. You know, we, we like, go to the same restaurants we order the same things and 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 we you know we we do we have these patterns in our life because we're looking for the sure thing and 
somehow along the way, I became infatuated with the, not just the show, the Kardashians, but my Instagram feed is like food, nature, and the Kardashians. It's amazing. It's, it's funny. I talk about positive outlets, right? And so there's lots of people talking about different positive outlets. I don't know if this is a positive outlet, binging the Kardashians, because they may be the worst, you know, form of of American social expectations. However, it's just like a breath of fresh air it's, for you. It's, it's <laughs> like, it's like Vegas. It's like the, it's like um, the best, you know, snapshot of America just in the most, you know, the ugliest extreme way possible. But I think deep down in that, whatever that uh, crazy world is, you know, like, like, the reason we love America is hidden underneath layers and layers of just ugliness in there. So uh, I don't know, maybe I could probably go real philosophical with this and I'll spare you. I'll spare you the, the details. Oh, we've gotten, we've gotten like Plato and Aristotle on people right now. It may seem like <laughs> we're having this conversation about culinary school and the Kardashians. This is so fundamental and foundational to the way that we are as humans, the way that we are as, again, that tribe, that band of misfits in the industry. And I think the more that we can be open and honest about all the shit, the better off that we're going to be. And the fact that we're talking about the Kardashians right now is equal parts brilliance and stupidity. And I think that's the point is that well, we also, matters. So one thing I've realized in my life, I've, I've made a real, since I have a, a son now and a family that's depending on me, I, I, you know, like I all of a sudden want to like live longer and like be healthy and be present. And um, so I've changed a lot about my health in the last nine months specifically. I've been on this journey, but um, what I've learned from that is when we get off work, there's only a few things to do, you know, drugs, drinking, food, TV, and you kind of like move down that list and, um, you know, there's also some healthy thing, you know, you can uh, go to sleep, you can exercise. Uh, and, and I try to do some of those healthy things. But occasionally, you want that nugget. And, you know, you kind of go to like, the, um, you know, the least harmful of them, even though it may not be healthy. And, and at some point in time, at one point in my life, it was food, I was like, I deserve this sandwich. But I realized that that was actually killing me was eating after work. And it was unhealthy. And so, um, you know, when I, when I, I don't drink as much. I, I've kind of removed all these vices from my life. I still partake every now and then, but I, you know, I'm, I'm more moderate about my vices. And um, at some point in time, man, television was just like an easy way for me to just, just not think about anything. <laughs> so I don't. Maybe it's doing something terrible to my soul, but I seem to be happy. <laughs> it's perfect. Just turning off your brain for a little while is is healthy. I. I have the same affliction, so I am with you 100%. Now, for another awkward segue of you not uh, partaking as much, let's talk about what's in your pantry all the time. And, of course, there's Red Breast and St. George Single Malt you called out specifically by brand. So here's what's interesting. A couple things occur to me from what we're talking about and just knowing you in our shared history. One, the fact that you just are are – in moderation as you said but you still are kind of a connoisseur and so you're like i'm gonna have these these small vices but i'm not gonna drink shit swill whiskey just because i need to get drunk i'm gonna do something for the enjoyment of it and i bet it's like you know one finger every third day of like something nice just to like 
while you're watching the Kardashians. <laughs> so, so that occurred to me. And the other part is it made me think again, back to our time together. And you were one of the first people that ever got me to drink scotch. You were really into scotch. I remember and had a, a pretty decent collection. Again, probably a time you're spending entirely too much of your paycheck because we didn't get paid much on scotch whiskey, but it definitely was informative to me. And I remember that and years later, drinking whiskeys and, and educating myself, I always, I always remembered that. Uh, so what is about that, again, that little vice, but having that high quality and, and being a connoisseur that kind of speaks to you? Oh, man, you know, I, um, well, it, we're, I don't know. We're in a time where, especially in our industry, where because mental health is, is, is uh, such a forefront of what people are talking about, a lot of um, very vocal, um, very um, visual uh, in the media, at least, uh, people have, you know, are, are very outwardly sober. And, and there's all these um, avenues that you can take if you're having trouble with, um, with addiction or sobriety or, or you know, everything in between but um you know part of me is i'm glad we're going that direction the other part of me does think there's some sort of weird you know vanity dichotomy when like people are like outwardly celebrating their sobriety when i think that that's like a very personal thing and i don't think there's anything wrong with um with partaking in like a really delicious spirit. I mean, if you ask me, like, you know, alcohol, sugar, tobacco, you know, all these things that, that we choose to put in our body, um, just because, you know, alcohol is, is very easy to pick on, but there's, there's plenty of things that are just as bad that are available to children, you know? Um, so I don't think alcohol is the, I don't think, alcohol is the enemy. And I think that there, I know people that make incredible spirits. Um, and I know that, um, you know, everything that a craftsman puts their heart into is, you know, is, is worth uh, partaking in, especially in moderation. So, um, you know, I don't drink a ton of scotch anymore. I, I, I remember going through that phase and realizing that there was like a ritual to drinking scotch and there was a place that you would put your mind so that you could stop and just enjoy that 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 drink and um and it was strong enough that you know it was like a speed bump you weren't like you know you weren't like chugging scotch you like drink scotch with somebody you respect you have a conversation but you know we weren't like drinking milk and scotch because our stomachs were raw from like you know from drinking shitty scotch um but i fell in love with you know these single malts and um, these whiskeys uh, from all over the world, and we have amazing, you know, bourbon in the South. So, um, not to count that out, but there is something about, you know, that again, it's that we keep talking about these little nuggets, but treating yourself to just a little nip of something is, you know, it feels like a treat, and it feels like, um, you know, when you're done with it, you're like, man, I want to work hard and earn another one of those you know, as opposed to, um, it, it's, it's a privilege, not a right, you know, like I, I don't have a shift beer anymore because I don't think I should just drink a beer because I achieved a day's work because everybody achieves a day's work usually. So I try to, you know, I, I try to use, um, those little celebratory nips as, um, you know, 
as something bigger. Jason, I knew this interview was going to be good, but you're like taking it to the next level, man. I, I love it because so much of the value in like the way that we're navigating our lives now is you realize that there's a lot of pulling from both directions. Like you said, like talk about sugar, man, you, you feed my five-year-old and three-year-old sons sugar. They are high as fuck, man. So like you say that that's not a drug is crazy. Our bodies just find a way to like normalize it. And I think that is important. I think the craftsmanship that you talked about, the heritage, the fact that you're not sitting there just chugging swill uh, is, is really, really important. And so there is that balancing act. And I think that's all things in life. And so the fact that you're finding that in a multitude of ways, also in something that you enjoy, like a single malt, I think is super important. So right into, I, I want to dig into Scotch more. It got me like super inspired. And I'm like such a research nerd that I was geeking out, going down rabbit holes. Like what else don't I know about Scotch or things like that. So I want to play a little game with you so we can uh, relive the Scotch days of old in our olden years where, you know, I woke up completely sober on New Year's day. That, that didn't happen when we were working together. You know what I mean? And, and, uh, and I did have just like a, a, a nip or two of something nice. And I was like, cool, I'm good. I'm happy. Kiss my wife at midnight. Awesome. Like game over, right? Let's get into some of your people. I want to know about first person that really sparked something in you creatively that maybe was about cooking or not about cooking that really you can see the kind of that direct correlation between kind of how you are creatively uh, in a kitchen these days. So who is that for you? Um, well, I mean, without a doubt, like my, uh, my younger brother, so he, we're only 13 months apart. So it's even weird sometimes calling him my younger brother. Cause he's just, um, such a badass. you know, he, he's like, he's got a PhD that drives a Maserati. He's got like 42 abs. He just like has life figured out. Like I, as a matter of fact, I tell him all the time, I'll call him. I'll be like, Hey, can you uh, get your shit together so that I live in your basement and drive your extra cars one day and just be a stay at home dad like watching that guy's discipline over the last, you know, 30, I'm 37, he's 36 over the last 36 years. And like seeing what, um, just like conviction and, um, and, uh, loyalty will, will do for somebody, um, has been, I mean, he's been my, my North star. Um, he kind of like re, you know, resets my, my compass every time I feel like I'm, I'm swaying a little bit, but, um, you know, I don't know if, if there was like a creative, uh, inspiration there or, or what, but, um, just seeing his discipline and his loyalty again, and his, um, is just, and his said him, he sets a standard for himself. That's just, it seems so unattainable. And he just like consistently achieves those goals made me, made me, realize that you know your mom tells you it all the time but we truly do have the power to do whatever it is we want to do if we as long as we work you know relentlessly at it so you know he's my he's my guiding light I love that guy work ethic clearly is something that you mentioned and and even broadly alluded to like early on so your brother and what's your brother's name uh Danny Danny Stanhope yeah he's Danny Stanhope big shout out from big brother uh so why do you think that you guys well 
I don't maybe know what his path was, but I'm guessing he's not cooking, driving a Maserati. No, 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 no. So I'm fascinated with, with, I also have a brother in the industry and he worked for me for years and our family has been in the industry for like five generations. There's all these legacy things that are interesting within the industry. I'm really interested in you guys, two brothers, so close in age, clearly so close just generally. How do you guys like navigate being brothers in a way that you guys are so different when it comes to career paths, but still so connected? Um, you know, I think there's just, it's just there's a mutual respect that um that is there but with a lot of the people that i've that i I call family or have chosen to be family with or i guess chosen and and unchosen family but the people that that love me for me and surround we choose to surround uh, ourselves with each other because um not necessarily like my wife doesn't necessarily want me to work um you know, till midnight for the rest of our lives. But she also knows that I'm happy doing what I'm doing. And she knows, um, even though it can be a point of contention, for sure, it's a schedule thing, but she knows that part of the reason there's an attraction there or a compatibility there is because I'm, a, I'm better at being me when I'm happy. And, um, you know, when it comes to my brother and I, like, I want him to do what makes him happy and what makes him feel challenged. He wants the same thing for me. And, um, you know, we've stayed close because we're always rooting for each other and our respective career paths. And, and quite frankly, I'm just like astonished at what he accomplishes. And, um, you know, he, he just, like I said, he kind of sets that bar for me and, and, uh, it's the greatest thing in the world to be able to look up to your little brother, you know, this is interesting. It dawned on me when you were talking is sometimes we silo ourselves within the industry and think, well, if you're not in the industry, if you're not working in a kitchen, you don't get it right? There's, there's some of that. Maybe there's some truth to it. And maybe there's some bravado and bullshit behind it where we're trying to like protect ourselves from being judged from somebody who quote unquote doesn't get it. I think it's interesting because I've gotten some of the best perspectives from what happens within the industry from somebody who's not in the industry. Do you see any of that there? Any of the potential where your brother's not caught up in the same BS that you are? So it gives them some perspective that you find value in? Oh man, he helps me so much because he's not um he's not jaded or um set in his ways or you know in this industry because he doesn't have any ways in this industry. He's never worked in the service industry, but he's such a great resource uh for me again when we're talking about people and relationships and uh emotions, all the things that are hard to talk about, but he's such a, a fresh set of eyes. Um that even if he doesn't have the answer, he's got the ability to um, figure out how to like, you know, just get me talking about it. And then when you guys start talking about something, all of a sudden things start to become clearer. And like the interesting parts, uh, the interesting thing about these conversations that we have that we're having right now that I have with my brother is, um, you know, sometimes we're guarded with what we say because we're learning as it's coming out of our mouth. And, um, and and with him, like I find that happening all the time. He loves leadership. He studies it. He sends me these crazy, you know, books and things that have been published on leadership. But um, so I talk to him a lot about leadership and 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 what it means to, you know, to surround yourself with people that are better than you 
and and still figure out how to lead them in a in a positive direction. So, um, man, he's an insane resource for a fresh set of eyes that doesn't have any preconceived notions about what it's like to work in a restaurant. Because quite frankly, the restaurant world is is going through a revolution right now for the better. But for a long time, it's been pretty twisted. Yeah, man. I want to be a fly on the wall in some of the conversations you and your, your brother have because clearly if, if he's your North Star and you're already a, a philosopher after my own heart, I'm sure Danny Stanhope has nuggets galore. Man. Oh, he, yeah, he is. He, it's, sometimes I have to tell him to like, I'm like, hey, you're gonna have to tone it down. I, I didn't understand a word you just said. You know, like take, he's, he's, take it down a notch, bro. He's amazing with yeah with the English language. You know, I absolutely love it. All right, move us forward. Little brother has been a bedrock since the get <laughs> and continues to be. Uh, talk to us about somebody else that uh, maybe in those early formative years that was really impactful. Um, you know, I had. Um, I had so many coaches and I talk about sports and, and whatever, but I had so many coaches and things um, along the, uh, over the years that, um, that I look up to and still look up to. Uh, but my, you know, my high school football coach, this guy named uh, coach Stringer at Hayden Catholic high school. He was, he, he was the one that kind of um, showed me what it was like to be or to, to devote yourself to like making other people better and how taxing that was. And I still think of a lot of the hard lessons that he, um, that he, he taught me, but it wasn't until I got older that I realized how much harder it was for him to like devote that energy to trying to make me better. Um, than it was for me, the person who's like receiving this discipline or, you know, whatever it was at the time that I thought was the end of the world. Um, but I look up to Coach Stringer because he was always my coach. You know, he he never, he never, like yes, we were friends, but he was he never crossed the friendship barrier. So he was always able to like lead and to uh, mold me in a in a in a positive direction, or at least arm me with the decisions to make, um, you know, good good decisions. But um, I look up to him a lot because I realize now as I try to you know, devote my time and energy into making, you know, people better around me that how just taxing that was and, and how many lives he affected in such a good way. So, you know, Coach Stringer was a, an amazing person and an incredible speaker. He could, I mean, he could lead it. He could get us hyped up to run into the wall and we would all do it full speed. I mean, he just was that kind of guy. What an important skill as a, as a coach and as a chef, so clearly you're able to take that into the kitchen. Now, you mentioned something. He was always your coach, and I'm sure if you saw him today, you call him coach, right, because he's coach for life. I think it's interesting because a lot of people will do the same thing with a chef. Once they're your chef, they're your chef for life. You see him 25 years later, you say, hi, chef, yes, chef. I think that that yeah, relationship is interesting, and that was set in you clearly early on from the yeah, sports the coaching the reverence is industry and the, or the reverence is, is interesting. The, the funny thing is like, everybody's like, Oh, when are you a chef? You know, when do you go from a cook to a chef? And there's so many answers, but I always tell people, I'm like, when people just, when people start calling you chef, like that's, you know, that's kind of a, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of things you could say, Oh, you're a chef. If you cook your own food, if you have your own restaurant or whatever, but um, you know, I always wanted to be a chef. I always want to be a chef. And I remember, um, and it just took time. 
but when I started hiring people and when I started doing my own thing and, and leading people in these walls, like it just happened organically. And, um, and now, so my brother-in-law works for me and sometimes I have to tell him, like if like we're at family gatherings, I'm like, dude, you can't call me chef today. Like you got to call me Jason. It's weird. That's amazing. Like, they don't get like, it. Right. Like, the rest of your family's like, what are you doing? Yeah. Who's no, chef? Yeah, he'll be like, hey, chef, you want to go have a beer or whatever? And I'm like, dude, just call me Jason around grandma. This is weird. That's <laughs> but great. it is funny because, yeah, that's, it's, it, it'll, it'll stick with you forever. Now, let's, let's make a direct correlation because I love that you called out a coach of yours. Where we're talking about coach versus chef, I think is important. The better – I talk a lot like you're a coach, therapist, and cheerleader. Coach, therapist, and cheerleader in the kitchen. And you yeah. got to know when to transition and they're very, very different things, right? So let's oh, yeah. go into a, a chef that you considered a coach early on, that you were coachable, right? You knew how to get coached. You knew how to get yelled at or inspired until you ran into a wall to your point. Is there somebody early on in the, on the chef side that really was that for you in the way that Coach Stringer was? Yeah, well, you know, like I kind of like there was like a void in the beginning of my career where um, I felt like and just due to circumstances where I was um, this hardworking support system for other people. Um, and, and there was a time where I was getting promoted just because I like maybe cared more or was in, you know, or worked harder, but I wasn't ready to be in those leadership positions. But I've, when I went on, I, after culinary school, I went to Peru and um, did my externship down there. And I worked for this German guy named uh, Michael Ross and, um, you know, we've kind of lost touch now, but, um, to see him, you know, lead and to see him, um, manage, uh, you know, three kitchens and his family. And, you know, he like ordered food in French and like spoke to his family in German and, you know, obviously spoke Spanish cause we were in Peru and like cussed in English. It was like the craziest thing. You know, all I understood was fuck shit and whatever else he said um i didn't even speak spanish when i was down there but um yeah michael ross he is was just the the most organized um he was hardcore like he 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 would he did not hold any punches pull any punches but he um but he also had this uh compassionate side that he like he knew that he had to get people he had to be likable to get people to follow him into that proverbial battle that we go into every night and um and you know a lot of the old school stuff was like this fear-mongering where now um it's a little different where it's a different culture and and he was the first glimpse of that culture where i was like okay you can be hardcore but you still have to be a person you still have to be likable and you still have to be able to connect with your um you know with your crew on a level that makes them want to do this crazy thing that we do every night you know take care of other people on these insane time frames and impossible conditions, you know? Yeah. As a, as a chef now, and now we're lots of deep reflection going here, put a bow in this for us. Coach Stringer, Michael Ross, these guys clearly instilled something. You talked about the work ethic of your brother. Uh, really everything we've talked about knowing how creative you are has been kind of the other side like the more grounded things that it takes, the more fundamental things versus the highfalutin creativity. So that clearly is really, really important to you. Give us something as a chef. I love isms. 
And clearly you're the type of guy who's got lots of isms. Coach Stringer, Michael Ross, some of the, that, your brother, what are a couple things that you're doing in the kitchen today with your crew that you see just this direct line from what you learned early on from some of these guys? Well, well it took years to like figure out how to find that, that balance. Cause I definitely was pretty hot headed, you know, early on and um, you know, I lost my temper. I would um, maybe have like an aggressive or, you know, uh, emotionally charged presentation that I like justified with um, good intentions. Um, and as of, you know, fairly recently, I would say I've like realized that you can't just have good intentions and then, you know, say whatever you want. Um, you really have to pick your battles and, and, and realize that every person's different, has different things going on in their lives. Um, but the thing I think that I've started to get, you know, better at that it's hard for me to even say that I'm good at it but um is I I can you know move through the kitchen and every person every you know every human that I have back there that's like working so hard I I think I can respect their their individuality but I can also um I'm getting so much better at changing my management style based on like all the variables that 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 we have in that moment to figure out how to get the most out of somebody and not even on like a selfish level. I'm, I'm not even talking about like accomplishing a prep list or whatever, but how to um, motivate somebody to like be better than they thought they could be, um, you know, based on, you know, what that person's going through in that, in that given moment. But um, I think I'm so much better at ma manipulating my management style so that I can motivate somebody to um like i said just to be better than they can be because that's like you know that's the goal that's i hear coach stringer all in that i'd, I'd run into a wall with you my friend I that's i think <laughs> well, that's the right, key the other key and, is that i'd be right next to you so and, and i'm sure exactly that i'm sure this the the crew recognizes that all right we gotta we gotta move forward i gotta we gotta talk about fig let's talk about i mean you've been at fig for how many years um, so I'm 11 and a half. Yeah. I'll be 12 in May. That, that is like in dog years, like 10 generations. I mean, when 18 months or two years is, is a lifespan. Got to like dig into that. Let's do a couple things. One, talk about, you know, who there is, is keeping you there. And, and I mean, I'll just add, is that Mike Latta? Is that, the guy right i mean what a, yeah, what a unbelievable well, chef and talented person yeah he's I mean, he's, he's, he's insane he's like the thing that drew me to chef lada is like you said he's well he's a cook and a chef i feel like there's a lot of cooks out there that don't know the first thing about chefing and there's a lot of chefs out there that don't know a whole lot surprisingly about cooking um and he was he, he had both of those skills like he was charismatic and he could lead a kitchen and he could run a successful business and uh, and do it all while you know just you know charming your face off, but at the same time, if he was on the line, like his station was the cleanest and the tightest and the most beautiful. When I started, I think he was still working the line. Now he has, you know, two restaurants and 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 is pulled in all these you know charitable endeavors and and whatnot. So um, you know, we don't cook together as much as we used to, um, but that was what 
and then just when I ate his food, I was like, I get why it's called food is good. I'm like, this is just like, it's just fucking delicious. And there's like no frills, you know, we didn't put anything crazy on plates. We actually pull things off the plate. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I drank the Kool-Aid and he has a partner named Adam Nimero, who is a total, um, unsung hero, uh, if you will. He is the other half of Fig and the Ordinary and, um, Chef Lada's business partner. Um, but he's kind of the voice of reason while we're, you know, while we dream up all these crazy plans, Adam tells us how it's going to work and he's always right. So, um, those two specifically built this brand at, at Fig and then Fig's been open for almost 17 years. Um, but they built this brand at Fig and it was just, it felt so genuine and so real, um, that I really had no choice but to buy into it. And I decided that because I loved what they did and what they represented, you know, beyond the plate into the world, um, that I wanted to spend, I wanted to devote 10 years to one restaurant as opposed to, you know, one year to 10 restaurants. Cause I'd seen so many of my counterparts, um, who had these great illustrious cooking careers just kind of, you know, fade away because they never dedicated enough time to a place to grow personally and professionally. Um, you know, and every time you move to another restaurant, you like generally you take a sidestep or a step back, but very rarely do you, you know, you get a promotion upon hire, you know, it's just not the way the kitchen world works. Patience. What an important skill that I don't have that our industry as a whole really doesn't have and, and the individuals within it. That is such that's such a leap because you're, you're basically going completely against the grain of what our industry is. It's like learn as much as you can from as many people as you can go, 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 go to slow down and have that patience is challenging. Well, I think, that, I think that's sure. okay. You know, I mean, I, that plan, the, 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 you know, the one where you move around and work for people, that plan's fine. If, you know, if your parents have money and are going to buy you a restaurant one day, but it is hard to open a restaurant and it is, difficult to figure out how to make those ends meet and it is terrifying to you know risk your life on uh you know a, frankly a like a pretty volatile game plan you know the, the restaurant like when, whenever a bank you know gives us money to open a, a restaurant i'm like are you are you sure <laughs> like do you know what the odds are of this restaurant surviving um you know so for me like i believe I, I believed that if I devoted enough time to specifically Chef Lada and Adam and I proved that I could bring this peace of mind to them that I would run this place as if it was my own, that um, that one day we would figure out what the end game is because that's the piece that's missing from the restaurant world is like we're so, sh you know, we're so short-sighted that we don't think about you know, the end game, how do we find, how do we get out of this business and still, you know, live a functioning life with our families? Um, and then, so that's, you know, that, that's, that's the, that's the secret. Uh, that's the magic question. You know, it's like, what do we do when we're done cooking? And do you think you ever get an answer to it? Or is it truly one of those? It's in the journey. It's in asking the question and trying to live whatever the reasonable answer that you can manifest in the moment because i don't know that there is an answer is that kind of it or do you well, think there is yeah, a, there I'm, is an I, actual answer no there's definitely not one answer right you know but you know owning a building is a good start um owning something is a good start but 
you know, I mean, so many people would argue with me on this, but I, you know, I don't think that owning your own restaurant is necessarily the best answer unless, like I said, you can buy the building or, or whatever, but we're talking about like, you know, it takes so many years of growing financially or growing a business or growing a brand to even be able to afford a restaurant or get somebody to, to loan you the money to buy a building. I mean, that's, the, that's what I, you know, keep getting at is that it's like, you know, you can bounce around if you want, but one day, you know, you will not have, unless you already have the leverage in your back pocket, you won't have the leverage to like open something of your own or do what you want. And then that's usually, you know, that's usually the, 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 uh, the end of the road for, for a lot of, a lot of us. So me, I knew I didn't have the resources to, to just like open a restaurant. Um, you know, to, I couldn't go to a bank and be like, give me however many, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars or more to open up a, you know, a, a sketchy business plan. Um, so I had to, I had to devote my life to something and this place felt so good. I didn't want to go anywhere else. Yeah. You talked about a revolution in the industry and I think it's manifesting in so many different ways and it's easy for us to put our own past successes or our hard work or commitment in the past on a pedestal and then demonize what's happening now or kids these days and big air quotes, all these different things happening. I think you touched on a point that's really important is the fundamental business plan, potentially business model for restaurants is needing to shift. And thinking about that is very like the humility that you have is really inspiring because I need doses of that on the daily. That's why Betsy, my wife is so good because she is there to say, Jensen, you're not that good. Like you're right. I'm not. Understood. No, you're good. You're good. You're I, good. Say, I say yes, chef, to her, and then I keep hustling and trying to, well, trying the to thing improve. That, the thing that we always say is that um, you know, unfortunately, we're all pretty disposable. Like we may be good at what we do. Like I'm, I, I know that I, I do a good job. Like I, we you know we get validation um, fairly regularly that we're in the right direction, that we're relevant, that we're making memorable experiences for people. But I actually keep, um, because I'm taking care of this restaurant for somebody else, it's not Jason Stanhope's restaurant. It's Mike Lada and Adam Nimrod's restaurant. I actually keep this sign in the kitchen that came from like some weird event that we did and it said Casa de Lada. Um, but it's, it's hanging in my office because every day when I come in, I grab that back door and a jolt of just like raw, like adrenaline pumps through my body because we're about to like get it. I walk in the office and then I come down just a notch because I remember that it's actually Lotta's house and Adam Nimro's house and that I have to respect it, you know, as if it, you know, as if it's not my house. I have to respect their vision and I have to like respect their direction. And um, so that is my like dose of, of humility every day is remembering it's not my house. So I have to, you know, my decisions don't just affect me. They affect the, the livelihood of, you know, two, two guys that have devoted their life to this building and to the people in it. So that's a, that's a heavy, that's a heavy responsibility. Yeah. Clearly channeling some of your athletic sports upbringing. It very much feels like, you know, Notre Dame football team running out of the tunnel and everyone's hitting the, the mantra on the wall as they run out. Right. It's like very, again, grounding in why like why do you get out of bed in the morning why are you going to walk through that back door who are you doing it for is so key and so the other thing I want to do with fig and speaking of who is I always love to give an opportunity for you to shout out just list form 
every name that you can think of, of every li literally every person that works at fig right now or anybody who's worked at fig that has meant something to you i think it's really important that we spend more time talking about others and within the industry to let them know that they like really fucking matter and just hearing their their name mentioned in a simple little podcast like this from you i think can have such a massive impact on the culture of our industry as a whole so i wanted you to just like throw names out there of people that have, have meant a lot to you currently or in the past and, oh, uh, man. There, and let their so, names be heard and you're going to kick yourself because so you're going to forget people and that's okay that's part of the point of this exercise is like let's keep <laughs> attempting to keep people in our minds and our hearts throughout the industry uh no there's so many but um let's see uh lucy morales valeria uh ramirez um andrew king obviously mike lana and adam nimero um the guy that trained me on fish big c true technician a real asshole but a true technician uh um let's see here oh maddie coon um uh nikki anhalt uh becca dupree uh morgan calcote she's our gm and wine guru and my partner in crime um ashley dodds and april carbone and um Let's see. Oh my God, there's so many. Uh, Andy Henderson and um, Vandy Vanderwalker and Peanut and BB and the whole dish crew that like blows my mind every day. Josh Smith, who got incarcerated and is getting out in January and is going to come back to work for us. I can't wait to squeeze his ass. Well, not his ass because it's 2020, but his his neck. And then, you know, the, the, the uh, Jessica Slaughter, who's been here for um, 16 years, who I've been, um, you know, looking at every single day of my life. I spend more time, probably spend more time with her than anybody in my life at this point in time. And um, she is just like a badass man. She is organized and, and, uh, and, and just like gets, she gets it done no matter what it is. So. I think it was great, Jessica Slaughter. I'm glad you, you, you perfectly, again, our segues have been amazing in this episode. Uh, Jessica Slaughter was your nominee as one of your Unsung Hospitality Heroes. And I was so appreciative when I read it because it would have been, it's easy to say this badass or that badass chef or somebody that seems to be more directly in our ecosystem. And I'm always so intrigued by the people that are in support roles at every level of our industry because it takes a village in a massive way for, you said it, for a couple people to look good. And I think that's so important. So I was so happy when I read Jessica Slaughter and kind of who she was. So Jessica Slaughter, somebody like that, the fact that you have that kind of person, so important because so many restaurants were just not organized, right? And to have somebody keeping us in line is so important. Give us a little bit more about why you guys have a Jessica, like why you put some time, money, effort, and commitment to having somebody to keep you organized versus being like, fuck it, we'll wing it, we can make it happen. Because so many restaurants, they're, we're gunslingers, right? 
So yeah, why, uh, why somebody like Jessica have such purpose in your company? Well, we, all, we all wear a ton of hats, obviously. And, and you try to do it, I guess, you know, with the least amount of people. Like, oh, that, that's the old way of thinking. It's like, let's do this with the least amount of people as possible because it's expensive, you know, and, and um, you know, health insurance is expensive and, and the payroll is expensive. But um, when you start looking at people like Jessica, who probably do the job of a dozen people you're like well that's actually <laughs> like that's actually quite a deal because she you know manages uh, the finances and coordinates um the the nasty matrix of all of our schedules and um you know she organizes health insurance and meetings and the the paperwork and the you know um she sends out the daily food cost report and like, uh, and I'm just, you know, she does orientations for all of our new hires. She's, um, and, and, you know, an, an in-house, um, HR figure and just like, uh, a, a pillar of, you know, organization and, um, and whatnot, and, you know, and right now, like, as I'm describing this, I'm like, man, I'm making her out to seem like a, a like a robot. Um, but she's also just like, so charismatic and like, so um, good at, again, like the leadership side of things. But, um, you know, she does it from this very, like, unassuming angle, because it's, you know, her hours are different. She works during the day. Um, you know, she does a lot of the, of the computer logistical, um, administrative stuff and, um, you know, all the stuff that probably get deprioritized by, um, chefs and front of the house, um, managers and operators everywhere because it, it literally is a full day's work to, to, to do that type of thing. When we do off premises, she, um, you know, helps us with like the rental orders and, um, she, you know, does these walkthroughs and things to make sure like every little detail is, is scrutinized. Um, but she, you know, she started here as, as a host and worked her way all the way up through the ranks of, uh, service and whatnot. And then this admin job became available and, um, all these people showed up for it. And, and one of my favorite stories is, you know, like on paper, she probably was the least qualified for it. But, um, when all these other you know, service staff were showing up in sweats or very relaxed just to talk about this job. Jessica showed up in like a fucking navy blue power suit with a whole like PowerPoint spread of how she was basically going to dominate the world. And um, it was a pretty clear decision to hire. And then, you know, ever since she's, like I said, she's been our logistical guru. I mean, she reminds me like to pay my bills and to like, take Anna Kate on dates and like, I mean, she's, she's awesome. Uh, I think organization actually empowers creativity. Sometimes it seems like the two things are at odds with each other. And so to have somebody like Jessica empowering your guys's creativity and focus is so, so important because we get so scatterbrained. And I think a lot of times uh, I asked about it kind of why you guys created this, this position and are so committed to it because I hear so often well, we'd hire that person if we had more money or we would do this thing if we had more time and clearly recognize the importance. I'm always like the other way. You can't afford not to. Like every restaurant can't afford not to have a Jessica. And I think clearly it's on display of how unbelievably beneficial and to the point of business, let's, let's just talk dollars and cents. She's doing the job of 12 people, clearly the best 
pound for pound fighter in the building, right? So I think that's super important. Yeah. So thank you for sharing Jessica with us. I think she is absolutely unsung hero and there's so many Jessicas throughout the industry that I want to see getting more and more attention. That's what this podcast is all about. And on that, let's leave everybody with some words of wisdom, a little something to live by, take it in the world and make it a better place. You say, if you want to make friends, don't be a leader, sell ice cream. Amazing how much we've talked about leadership. Talk to us about that statement for you. Well, it's actually a Steve Jobs quote and there's yep. so many good out there. And obviously, you know, there was like this little, little like correlation to the food world because he, you know, he uses, he uses ice cream as the, uh, as his, uh, you know, punchline or whatever, but it's so true. We, you know, we talk about all the time as, as leaders. And when I talk to chef Lotta, we don't talk about food. We talk about how to talk to each other. We talk about how to ride that line of, you know, how he can empower me to make decisions without diluting his brand and how I can take initiative without stepping on toes. And, and it's this, you know, this crazy um, conversation that we have, but, you know, a lot of that conversation is like, how do we remain leaders and how do we, um, you know, not like, it goes back to again to like making people better it, it hurts sometimes. It's a painful process. Learning sucks. Anybody that says they like to learn is crazy um, because it is so hard. Um, but within that leadership, you have to make the hard decisions because you have more, you know, more variables than the people you're leading. And, and, and it's your job. They trust you owe it to them to make those hard decisions. And in the kitchen, we say, if you make the, if you make the hard decision every time you, you you'll always be right. And um, sometimes the hard decision means, you know, uh, saying the tough thing to make somebody better. And, and sometimes, most of the time, friendship clouds that, that decision-making process. And, and when we promote people from within, we always graduate from within. We never hire management from the outside. Um, but the hardest part of that learning curve for our managers that are promoted from within is all of a sudden you go from like having beers every night with, 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 the, with your peers to having to lead them and to having to, you know, having to tell them when something's not right or to convince them to cook like you because you're in that position for a reason. And, um, and it's difficult. And if, you know, and if you let friendship get in the way of, of that, you'll fail every time, which is, you know, the harsh reality. And I, I love the uh, harsh reality of that, of that quote. It's, it's a true, true statement. And actually we're, we're fathers now and we're talking about leadership and literally with the boys and grandmas in town, I am going to quote frozen too. And they say, just do the next right thing. I heard that. I was like, look at Disney and Frozen teaching me a quote that I scribbled down and I'm going to use in leadership. Do the next right thing. It's exactly I'm writing it saying. down right now, dude. It's, it's going to be my, my lineup fulcrum. Do today. the next right thing from Frozen 2. Uh, I was baffled. And again, learning things outside of your frame of reference within the industry. I'm listening to Disney movies. I'm finding nuggets all over. So I am grateful for that quote. Jason, unbelievable conversation. I knew this was going to be a lot of fun. Thank you so much for bringing a lot of value to the industry as a whole, to everybody who's listening, clearly to the whole team at Food is Good. I really appreciate you. Man, I had a blast. Thank you. Cheers. 
Jason and I have gotten to geek out a little bit, talking about our shared history, working together in the past. His dedication to a single location where he's worked at one place and I've worked at 374 in the same period of time was very fascinating to me. He was really, really natural talking about other people, which is sometimes challenging in our industry for myself included, and gave a major shout out to Jessica Slaughter, who we have on the line right now, who is the Director of Administration, Events, HR, Kitten Herding, right, Jessica, you do it all. Is that, <laughs> that, is that right. what I hear from that, Jason? That pretty much sums it up. Um little bit of everything all behind the scenes we'll try to keep things running seamlessly at the restaurants i think what you're doing is such an important role i said it to jason i think we need to invest more in the connective tissue and somebody who's able to navigate that and keep everybody focused motivated you know same team one one team one mission type thing is very very important because we get so siloed in restaurants so often so we'll get into that a little bit how you're able to execute at such a high level for so long within a company i think is a valuable roadmap for a lot of us i want to start yeah. though a little bit tell us where are you from originally sure i'm from columbia south carolina originally um moved to charleston to go to the college of charleston um in 2003 got full scholarship there but still had to get a job and that job was hosting at a new restaurant called fig so your first job in the industry you got right into fig well i had a few before that in high school i uh worked at a deli called hooligans uh that's kind of an institution in columbia like sadly just closed last year or two um you know known for our chicken fingers and milkshakes and that kind of thing um, Love it. Then, what got you? What you got you into the first job? Always very interesting to me how we get into the the industry. I think kind of starts off our trajectory. So, what was it for you that got you sure. into working at you know the deli? I think it was pretty much the only place that would hire me when I was fifteen, and I was ready to start having some income. So, um, just went and applied there with a friend over the summer, and uh, and stuck it out. Um, you know, definitely learned some good work ethic, uh, scrubbing out the bottom of like freezers covered in meat grime. Um, you know, learned how to run a cash register, count, count cash. We didn't have the internet. So it was a, it was a great learning experience. Yeah. I like that. That's the classic. Like I just need some money. Who's going to hire yeah. me? The restaurant industry <laughs> all of our all of our strengths and greatness, all of our weaknesses, everything in between, it is such an entry point into the world for so many of us. If you stay in it or you don't, I almost think it's like you should be required to understand the social fabric that we're a part of to 100%. work in a restaurant. Like you yeah. just learn. It's like the whole world in one small four walls all the good all the bad all the ugly everything in between is in a restaurant so i oh, love yeah. that at, at everyone 15, should have to do six months in a restaurant and six months in retail which was about as long as i lasted in retail <laughs> i i feel i feel you there big time so then you get into fig really early on you're in college you go to fig and i mean you stuck with it there's something we're gonna we're gonna dig out of 
the longevity, yeah. just thinking about you and Jason, unbelievable. I mean, that's like 12 lifetimes in a restaurant, uh, the amount of time that you guys have spent when the average is, you know, I mean, the real hard number average is that people in a restaurant, the turnover average is 56 days. That's wild. Like, I believe it's, it. It's <laughs> insane. The turnover. Crazy. A lot of restaurants have the turnover averages over 120%. It literally means in a single year, more people, if 25 people is the total number of employees you'd have at one time, that means 31 people have worked there over that year. You're turning over everybody. I'm mean, getting this crazy. Like uh, it's crazy. It's daunting and scary. When it you actually makes me feel that. better because ours is not that high, but. <laughs> and I think uh, that's the, that's the, the magic. That's yeah. the magic that I want to unlock in this conversation right now. So I don't even know where to start because I've never heard of that. So start yeah, me sure. somewhere, start us off somewhere of what? you and Jason being bedrocks in a <laughs> single location for so long. Yeah. Um, well, like I said, I, I came on to fig when I was, I was 19. I was uh, in my second semester, uh, giving up on that retail job and, uh, uh, came in my my uncle randomly told me that he knew of a restaurant that had just opened that was hiring hosts so I went in there um, applied as a host worked there all through college as a host server assistant server and um, honestly I think I'd been there for a while when Jason came on as a line cook I was serving we hit it off as friends pretty quickly and you know would have drinks after work and all that um, and then he actually left for a little while and then came back as our sous chef and around that same time i was taking uh an administrative assistant role with the restaurant just um i think i just graduated was trying to get um a more like nine to five-ish schedule but wasn't quite ready to get out of restaurants um and that was when jason and i really started working together um like constantly and um and it was kind of a fun time too because we actually moved into the same condo complex so we would have like pizza parties by the pool where we'd grill out and uh sundays would come over for cinnamon buns and um you know had a real friendship outside of the restaurant which was great um and definitely makes working together fun um and then what was really fun was seeing jason kind of into his own when um when we opened the ordinary in 12 and at that point uh chef Lada took a step away was focusing more on the ordinary um was kind of like why isn't jason getting nominated for a james beard award and i guess the answer was that he needed to be the executive chef and technically his title was still chef de cuisine um so he promptly promoted him and then he promptly got nominated for the award and um I think at that point we'd been nominated for wine program like maybe twice. And uh, so we were already going to Chicago for outstanding wine program and um, Jason got nominated. And I think we thought like that we might win for wine program that year since it was our third year. Um, but we really kind of thought like it wasn't Jason's time yet. Like nobody wins their first year being nominated. And then he did. And it was just so exciting and shocking, but not um, because he's so great. And I think, you know, other chefs are voting for that. And, and he's just so likable in the industry, I think, um, which goes a long way. Um, yeah, it's, I, I think I'm it, rambling. <laughs> no, this is perfect. Yeah. I think it's really, really great because 
this is part of the, the platform of this show. I want him to have the opportunity and everybody who's on the show to have the opportunity to really like show some love for the people that have been there along the journey, who are there in the trenches today, who like really we're doing this for. And so it's a lot of time spent talking about everybody else except Jason. We never yeah. even talked about really James Beard. I like also to then have you on to have you get some attention for the amazing work you do and for you to then say, oh, by the way, yeah. Jason Stanhope, James Beard award-winning chef, right? And yeah. I, think that's, I think that's super, super cool. So it's fun. It's like, uh, you know, he didn't have to humble brag about it. He let you do it. So I think it's, yeah, totally. I think it's, I think it's really great. Now, you, in the position you're in, there's not many of you in a single restaurant, two restaurants, maybe even five restaurant <laughs> size groups, right? It's yeah. just not an investment that we make. We, we, it's because it's, it's not more of the same, right? It's not sure. more cooks. It's not more servers. It's not a GM, AGM, and bar manager. It's a completely new lane. And I think it's important to talk about why yeah. why did mike and adam make the investment in you can can you reflect on that a little bit and get us down to that because whatever that moment is <laughs> i want other people to have that moment so give us the roadmap yeah i can try i um i think I, you know it helps that i wear many hats i uh I've always said that I'm I'm really good at a lot of things, but not really great at any one thing. And in this case, uh, it's really helped me in in this career path. <laughs> Sorry, that's that's a cat. <laughs> anyway, uh, I guess around the time I had been serving, I graduated college in 2007. Said I was going to serve for a year and travel, and then you know look for a quote unquote real job. And um, then it was 2008, and the economy had crashed and there weren't any real jobs in Charleston. And I really liked working for Mike and Adam and I didn't want to leave. I just um, wanted a new challenge and something outside of serving. So at that point they were looking for some really basic administrative help, like someone to answer the phone, someone to help enter some invoices. And um, Adam took me under his wing at that point and um, I applied for the job and, and got it. And uh and then over the years, it just really grew and it was kind of like what I could make it by like, we need to improve our onboarding. We need, you know, to make sure our HR is all compliant. We, um, you know, need to be more meticulous in our record keeping with invoices. And, um, and then we opened a second restaurant, The Ordinary, and um, I, you know, pay all the bills, do all the payroll, do all the bookkeeping, um, as well as sit down for an orientation with every single new employee and onboard them and take them through that whole process, help with training a little bit. And, um, and that grew to definitely be a full-time job. Um, then add on planning events, helping Chef Lada's, you know, calendar stay organized. He is incredibly busy and is constantly doing you know, food and wine festivals and charity events and all kinds of things. And people don't realize like, oh, your chef has a whole calendar he needs managed. And that actually became a full-time job that we ended up hiring someone else for, Jenny Rydell, who is amazing. Um, so yeah, it just grew to be a, a full-time position that uh, keeps me more than busy. Um, I, like, and, I like what you're saying. I want to unpack a few things. First, yeah, sure. first I want to start with 
Jason mentioned it, and I want to hear from you about how you showed up to your interview for this job. Oh. He, he said it was, you came, you came correct. So tell it's us. Funny it, that, yeah, it's funny that he remembers that because, uh, you know, I, they, there was another girl who was amazing um, who was kind of doing these administrative tasks, but they, she was doing it on an hourly basis and they wanted to make it a full-time position and she wasn't sure if she was ready to commit to that. So I kind of was like, well, I'm ready. Is it, is it okay if I throw my hat in the ring? So I did. And I like took it really seriously. I put on like a nice blouse and pants, which, you know, for 24 year old me, was a big deal. Cause I basically only owned server clothes and going out clothes at that point in my life. And, uh, you know, printed a resume, wrote a cover letter, like sent it all. And, um, and I think Mike and Adam were kind of shocked by that. Cause they thought we were just going to sit down and chat. Um, but you know, it, it made all the difference. I, I got the position and, um, the other gal, Sarah Vinesa is amazing. She went on to be one of our GMs. So I, I think it all worked out for both of us. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I did, I did come correct. I would say. It, it's, it's really great. I think that he remembered it was impactful. Yeah. I think how seriously you took it and clearly Mike and Adam were like, all right, this girl's just going to run with it. Like they had such a low quote unquote low expectation. It wasn't like, Oh, they had a low expectation of you, but that it was going to be super cash. And you're like, no, this is, this is serious. I'm serious. Yeah. Like, let's go. And so instantly there was trust and confidence, which is a dynamic that I'm always really, really fascinated in. All right. The next thing from, from listening to you talk that I thought was interesting is you sitting down with every single employee for an orientation. I cannot tell you, or I can't, I don't need to probably tell you how important that is. And it doesn't yeah. happen. Let me paint a picture for what I see happen most of the time. You have the job. Why don't you come on Monday, like half an hour before your shift and we'll fill out paperwork. You know what? They show up on Monday. We're too busy. Why don't you just take this paperwork and stuff and uh, we'll take care of it and get you all in the system at the end of the shift. They go through the shift. They just do whatever random thing. They're just thrown in somewhere. Yeah. The end of the shift comes. That was crazy. You know what? Why don't you just like bring all this back tomorrow? They bring it back tomorrow. And this can repeat for several shifts. And then oh, we totally. expect them to be accountable, to be to prompt. To understand culture. To understand the culture. So the culture is you just go in there and ram your head against the wall until it's <laughs> over. And I see that so often. I'm like, it's all about brand and culture and story. And totally. if you can tell them that from day one, they're yeah. bought in and, and every move that they make reflects those moments spent with them. So if we can't be accountable to our employees to onboard them properly, what Absolutely. possible reason should, should why, we expect them? Invested? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and then we, and then we spew at them. Why didn't you do this thing? I don't know. Why didn't you like, onboard me like a real professional job like it starts from the beginning and from the top so i am so all in on that take that a little bit further why it's so important within your organization for you personally and then practically how you're going about that to get the best out of those people from the get yeah i mean it really starts from the beginning like getting to know who they are and how that translates to being a valuable player for your company and, um, and, you know, explaining to them 
what kind of culture and restaurant they are walking into. And yes, there's definitely restaurants in Charleston where you can just, you know, show up, clock in, make loads of money, go home, not think about it at all. But um, at, at Fig and the Ordinary, the, the menu is constantly changing. The, you know, philosophies generally stay the same, but we're constantly evolving, trying to stay relevant. We're, you know, 16 years old at Fig, uh, six, seven years old at The Ordinary. And um, there, there is homework when you, when you work for either of our restaurants. Uh, we, we're constantly learning about new wines, learning about sustainable seafood policies. Um, and and I, I guess that reflects all the way from the hosts that we hire to the dishwashers, to the line cooks, to the managers. And um, I sit down with every single new employee and go over our handbooks and, um, and talk about how that relates to them and their position. And it helps me because like you said, there is a good amount of turnover in the company. And if I don't meet every single person, then names and all of that is even harder to keep up with. Yeah, I'm going to fly to Charleston so you can onboard me as an employee. <laughs> I, I am so fascinated by it. I think the, the better that you can start the relationship, yeah, the more absolutely. opportunity the relationship has. And, and I, think it's, I think it's super important. The third thing, when I was listening to you talk initially, is a phrase that, that I use a lot is organization empowers creativity. I think a lot of times they seem like they're at odds because creative people aren't organized, organized people aren't creative. These type of you know, stereotypes or friction. Uh, and I think it's, it's interesting because when people buy into organizations that are creative, their ability to be creative I think is exponential and vice versa, when organized people are influenced by creativity, they become more creative about the way that they organize. And I, I just think that that is such a symbiotic relationship when done well. So that, working in such a highly creative space, being such an organized person, where do you see the best opportunity for you to navigate that? And maybe some, give us maybe even some funny stories about trying to herd some of those creative kittens. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a tough. I mean, I'm innately organized. I have been my whole life. You know, I'd like to think that I'm creative, but like compared to people like Jason and Chef Lada, certainly um, more of a pragmatic, uh, my, my husband actually calls me like his cold German wife. So um, Jason tends to be very romantic and I think I tend to be more pragmatic. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, the classic is just like, trying to get a menu for an event or a dinner like you said and I'm like why can't you just give me the menu like you know you're gonna cook food just tell me what the food is and uh and it can be like just going back and forth and oh maybe this and what about that and and like really I won't get the menu finalized until maybe the hour before the event because uh, you know a lot of our concept is based on what the farmers and fishermen are bringing in the back door and we just don't know until the day of um so that is kind of a constant challenge and then just feeling like communication um you know there's a reason that chefs don't respond to emails as quickly as someone like me and that's because they're working in a kitchen all day and I'm working on a computer all day and it is unreasonable to expect them to be prompt in those kind of responses um but uh if I can just like finagle an answer out of uh the chefs then I can be the person who relays that information um <laughs> so often when I get a text from 
either Jason or Chef Lada, it, it'll be like a yes or no question and the, and the answer I'll get will be okay. <laughs> but, uh, That's, no, uh, I can, I can hear the, the sigh. <laughs> and uh, I know exactly of what you speak. Uh, my wife, Betsy, actually is always pleasantly surprised how detailed and organized I am as a hyper creative person because she puts, she puts on big events and we do a lot of culinary events and I call her the kitten herder, except she has to not only hurt kittens, they're drunk kittens who are <laughs> megalomaniacs with knives. So they are the most dangerous kittens possible. And it's, and it's, it's very interesting. You'll ask like, same kind of thing. She's like, so I asked him how many pieces he was going to do. And he said, yes. It's like, yeah, <laughs> at, at least you got a response. Yeah. So <laughs> I, think yeah, it's, true. I think it's very interesting. I separate the two processes. I am creative and I'll write on the walls in crayon. And then I might have to take a nap and then come back to and then put everything in nice, neat little boxes. So it's like very separate processes. So I'm interested in this from your perspective you are creating such infrastructure for the creativity again your organization empowering the creativity now that's also a potential double-edged sword because yeah. are you also then an enabler to the lack of organization because they're like oh i don't need to worry about it jessica will I've handle it. it how do you practically give us some like real practical you know anchor of like how you're navigating that part of it because i could see that being a challenge creating another challenge oh sure i mean practically is is that i make notes of everything and i don't ever count on actually remembering stuff myself i have i'm more of a typer so i constantly have a notepad open on the bottom right hand corner of my computer and like as soon as jason tells me something i make a note of it and then once i've done it i cross it off and delete it um i send my like self screenshots of text in the middle of the night and I'll email it to myself so that I'll remember to do it in the morning. I put calendar reminders for everyone, for everything. I have like eight different calendars and um, all color coded with reminders and email alerts and just like count on the fact that I'm not actually going to remember all of it, which I do remember a lot of it, but, uh, but it's not realistic to think that you and everyone are gonna remember everything. So just having those fail safes for you, whether it's a notepad, physical, or on the computer, or a calendar, or nine million alarms and alerts. And, um, you know, luckily, Mike and Chef Lada are, are really some of the, the better case scenario, I would say. They're, they're you know, very generous with their time. and. Um, and they are organized, but they're busy, you know, we're all busy. So you got to have those fail safes. Yeah. I think from what Jason kind of just softly alluded to was <laughs> just a sense that he got, he's maybe more organized because of the trust, the confidence, the relationship that you have respecting how important organization is to you. So I think it's clear right. that you were enabling less organization you're actually inspiring more and so this is the roadmap every chef listening <laughs> listen right now if you want to go and win a james beard award you probably have to be incredibly insanely talented like somebody like jason is however if you want the opportunity to get to the point where you can flourish with your creativity today you better be as organized as jessica slaughter because that's the <laughs> only way that you're really going to be able to take it to the next level 
until the point where you go, you know what? I have to invest serious money and care into somebody like Jessica Slaughter. You're going to have to earn <laughs> it at first because they're going to be expensive because they are incredibly valuable. So I'm just talking to all the, all the chefs out there. It's so, so important to have the organization. I mean, truly what you said, like being an, 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 a talented cook and certainly Jason is that he's amazing, but I feel like that's maybe like 20% of his job. Like he's got to be a great people person. He's got to be business savvy. He has to be organized. And um, that's a lot, uh, you know, cooks coming up thinking like, I just want to make great food. But um, once you get to that executive chef level, there is so many other factors and responsibilities you have to master to be successful. Jessica, I could not agree more. I cannot wait until you write the book about, <laughs> about and, and take the name, uh, uh, Organization Empowers Creativity. Uh, I said yeah. it to me before we start recording. You got, you got to steal it. Uh, <laughs> I, I say that, uh, that uh, originality is remembering what you heard and forgetting where you heard it. So I think I came up with that, but it's very possible that I already stole it. So when you name your book that, I won't care, but somebody <laughs> else might be like, wait a minute, that's, you're, st you're stealing my stuff. I just that's think it's true. really great. I think it's so important to, to give this show is all about the stories that create a roadmap for best practices within the industry. And I think if people wait until they have the money to invest in somebody like you, it's, it's too late. Like you have to set priorities for that level of organization and detail and care and that connective tissue. Jessica, thank you very much for talking with us. And thanks for what you do at a place like food is good. So important for our industry as a whole. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.